Welcome to Healing Wisdom, a Thursday morning talk show featuring guests sharing their stories and knowledge. We discuss the healing aspects of the arts, metaphysics, social justice, and adventure through all types of terrain. So join me, Pandora Peoples, here on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. We're streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. This administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. We are 60 years into a war on poverty, and giving poor people money still feels new. When you are coming from poverty, you're stuck. We started with one mayor in one small city with 125 people, and now we're at 80 mayors. In the city of Providence. Austin, here in Long Beach. The city of New Orleans. Guaranteed income helped me get back to work. You put a little gas in my tank, I'll show you how far I can go. I don't think we know yet if this is a moment in time or if this is a fundamental shift in the way we think about who we are as a country. I think it depends on what we do next. Hello out there. Today we welcome three-time Emmy-winning director, filmmaker Mark Levin. His new documentary, It's Basic, follows the lives of families receiving guaranteed income in pilot programs. It's Basic screens at the Provincetown International Film Festival Saturday, June 17th at 6.30 p.m. at Water's Edge Cinema. His film Slam won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival and the Camera Door at Cannes. Welcome, Mark Levin. Thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. Your documentary starts off quoting Thomas Paine. It is wrong to say God made rich or poor. Why is that quote so important in in understanding the underlying beliefs and assumptions people have had about poverty in the United States? Well, I think for two reasons. One, that uh, the idea of uh, income inequality, uh, unfair distribution of wealth is not a new idea in America. It's right there with our founding fathers. And two, that this idea that, you know, rich, poor, middle is kind of preordained that, you know, this is human fate or divine wisdom is rejected by Thomas Paine and certainly uh, many others that there are alternatives especially as we are living through, I guess, what you could call a new gilded age where income inequality is as bad as it, if not worse than in the original gilded age back at the beginning of the 20th century. So to have so much uh, unbelievable wealth in the hands of so few people is not healthy for society. Indeed. And it's my understanding, you know, um, 100, 150 years before Thomas Paine's time, that there was a Calvinist belief in that preordained destiny, manifest destiny concept. And it really reinforces that if you're a victim of society's prejudice, discrimination, or inequalities, it's because God willed it to be so. It's something to really contemplate because it really reinforces the status quo. Because, of course, those who make laws and control resources at the top of this hierarchy benefit from that idea that God willed them to be in that position. And I really believe, as you do, that it's an underlying concept and it keeps people in their position because as long as there's God-fearing and God-loving, then they're always seeking and scrambling for his favor and thinking, oh, this just happened to me, not because of a structure that was created that's hurting me, that, that I need help changing. 
I see you're a student of uh, Max Weber's uh, Protestantism and the uh, the theories, uh, especially coming from the Cape and the history of uh, the Puritans and the Calvinist tradition. You're right. That is uh, deep in the American uh, kind of DNA. But uh, here you have Thomas Paine rejecting that, as did many of the other founding fathers. And uh, I think, though you're still right, that there's a a kind of a school of thought, which is maybe more even less Calvinist and and, uh, more survivalist, uh, Darwinian. Uh, you know, law of survival. Hey, you know, uh, look at the animal kingdoms. They're strong, there's weak, and that's just the way it is. And to try to equalize things or as as much discuss equal opportunity, give people equal opportunity, it's kind of messing with the divine order. But yes, uh, Thomas Paine rejected that. We use that as an opening quote. And uh, certainly these guaranteed income pilots are a step in the direction of trying to help minimize the damage done by this huge wealth inequality in our society. It basically is a poison. It corrupts uh, the democratic uh, concept. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you being up there on the Cape, the Protestant tradition and its relationship to work, uh, kind of having started there in the American colonies, but it is in Cambridge, which is one of the communities that that we follow participants in. Cambridge is actually the first city to make this guaranteed income not a pilot probe, but to make it public policy that anybody with an income below a certain level that meets these uh, protocols is not part of a lottery to be in a pilot, but is now qualified for $500 a month, no strings attached for, I think, a year, up to a year. This is a, I, I would almost describe it as a subterranean movement. Now, there are guaranteed income pilots in over 100 cities. And yet, you know, if you look at today's newspaper and all last week's news in terms of the debt crisis, uh, and everything going on, what you 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 hear the whole total opposite of of the the movement to cut back social benefits to now have a commission in the House that will look at uh, making cuts in Social Security and Medicare, and yet on a local level, which is really the closest to real people and solving real problems. You see all these cities around the country experimenting with a different way to strengthen the social safety net and help citizens, most of them working, some not, some disabled, some out of the workforce, but most of them of what we would call living paycheck to paycheck, the working poor, sometimes working two jobs, and yet still unable to afford with this inflation, with this economic inequality, Uh, unable to afford the basic necessities, the housing crisis, the affordability crisis. So this is an experiment to see, can these small payments help? And of course, the critics will start loudly claiming that, oh, you give somebody $500 a month, they're not going to work, or they're going to use it on drugs and alcohol or gambling. And there will always be a few misfits, no doubt. But these pilots are being run so there are academic studies tracking them. There is data. And the initial data suggests the total opposite, 
that it actually empowers people, actually allows people to get better jobs, uh, to take time off, minimum paid jobs, to look for upgrading their skills and also finding better work. So this film follows uh, some of those participants in five of the over 100 cities that are experimenting with guaranteed income filing. Many people received checks during the COVID pandemic. Do you think that this helped to shift people's ideas about and resistance to guaranteed income? Yes, I, I think there is no doubt that the COVID pandemic and lockdown opened a door uh, to thinking differently about the role of government and about the role of direct cash payments uh, from the government. We all got them at a time that we were locked down, couldn't go to work, couldn't go to school. Uh, and of course, in many ways, we've been living since the, really the 80s, or the last 40, 50, 40 years, in a, uh, a kind of market fundamentalist world, which was, uh, as, as in the film, uh, Ronald Reagan says, you know, the, the seven most uh, dangerous words are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. And, and he was also the president said, the government isn't the solution, it's the problem. Now, we all know that there are problems with the government, there's no doubt, and huge bureaucracies and all sorts of issues. But the, the pandemic was a wake-up call, though, oh, this is the reason we have a government. This is the reason we come together when there's a crisis like this and we need to act uh, in solidarity and as, a, as one to combat it. And the government helped us get through it. Uh, not only with uh, on the health side and vaccines, et cetera, but with obviously these direct cash payments and the PPP payments to, to businesses. So there's no doubt, and this movement grew out of that. This, you know, uh, Mayors for a Guaranteed Income movement grew out of that. They saw that people had changed their attitudes and that the government could help uh, and they, the, the getting direct cash with no strings attached could work. So I think that was a huge, huge uh, moment uh, that opened people's minds. What was it like following these families so closely? Well, it's, it's moving to see, uh, first of all, people who, you know, I, I should preface this, that these participants were self-selected, meaning that in each of these pilots, there was what was called a storytelling cadre, participants who had volunteered to tell their stories. Uh, other members didn't want, wanted to be private, didn't want people to know they were getting this money. And also the uh, researchers didn't want to uh, pollute the study. So they were self-selected. They all um, had greater ambitions uh, in, in, you know, in their lives. So in a way, it was inspiring. Um, you know, to see that a little bit of money could make a world of difference. Uh, we don't think of $500 or, you know, I, I would say I, you know, as making as much of a difference in people's lives as it could make. But, you know, at the same time, just following any real people's lives, especially at such a turbulent time, at such a time of economic uh, uncertainty and insecurity, there are dramas every day. So for us, it was trying to navigate. We wanted it to be authentic and, and uh, not uh, just kind of hit people over the head 
um, as kind of an advertisement uh, for, you know, guaranteed income, but show, okay, here are some real lives and trying to find the balance between the real challenges that people face, even if they're getting uh, $500 a month, that doesn't answer all the crises that anybody faces from health crisis, education, jobs, all of that. So I think that was the real uh, challenge in the film was how to make the characters real, three-dimensional. Also, there's a, you know, we're in five cities. Well, how many characters can you, can an audience, you know, kind of relate to? Thank you so much, Mark Levin. All right, have a great day, appreciate it. X marks the strange ways of time. How a century ago can feel like yesterday. And, quote, from this day forward, feels like never. X marks an agreement. Whatever name one uses to refer to the Black Hills, it is unquestionably the place of our beginning. And another X marks this land as ours, unquestionably by treaty. I'm so pleased to have directors Jesse, Antoine Schorpel, and Laura Tomaselli talking with us about their new film, Lakota Nation vs. Ah. United States. It's screening at the Provincetown International Film Festival Sunday, June 18th at 1 p.m. at Water's Edge Cinema. Welcome, Jesse and Laura. Thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Pandora. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. It was a pleasure to watch your film because it's optimistic, it's uplifting, it's a story of resilience, but it documents so much uh, Native American history. So Lakota Nation versus United States chronicles the Lakota Nation century-long quest to reclaim the Black Hills, which is sacred land, which was stolen in violation of treaty agreements. It's so comprehensive. It's so all-encompassing. We were just talking about how, you know, it could be a 10-hour-long film, but it's a beautiful, succinct film. So tell us about how you came to make this amazing film. You know, I, I think a lot of things were kind of uh, at work, um, things that, you know, creatively were maybe beyond all, any of us who were involved. A lot of things had to line up. And, and I think that at the end of the day, it was the story itself wanted to be told. And I think that um, it just sort of uh, found the right conduits, whether it was uh, Laura, myself or anybody else that was involved with the project. Everything just kind of started by a news article uh, that one of our producers, uh, ben, Benjamin Hadeen, had read about the court case that the Lakota had with the United States. And just that little uh, news article seemed to be the catalyst that started everything to where we are now. The reason why I got involved was that it really felt, sort of going off what Jesse said, it felt Faded in a funny way. I'm kind of a woo-woo type person. And I don't know, when I met Jesse, when I spoke with Jesse, and based on the experience I have in the past working on archival docs, I was just like, if there's any chance I can do this, I would. And we met for the first time. We had our first sort of like director date. I remember in a parking lot of 
well, some hotel in Rapid City. And we were both, I think the fact that we were both so scared to try and do this, we, we knew that we could, it was the right way to approach it. You know what I mean? So you cover everything from countless treaties broken by the government to the creation of Mount Rushmore to the gold rush to the kidnapping of children for Indian residential schools to Standing Rock. There's so much history to tell. Was it dying to tell it all to tell the true full story of the history? I think that it was incredibly daunting. And I think that we could interview people for four more years and have a different movie. But the people that were that we were lucky enough to interview for this film, a lot of which, a lot of whom Jesse is very good friends with. He, he helped us pick these people. It came together in a way where you understood the, how the pieces needed to go together a bit better, because it is both their personal narratives, but how they work into this larger history as a whole. And so that, you know, that was at least a first stepping stone for us to begin to try and address the structure and how much. And there are definitely parts of the history that we tried to put in those scenes that we shot that um, in the interest of making it digestible, watchable for the greatest number of people, you know, we did trim it down for sure. Yeah, yeah. And like Laura said, I think that we knew that the majority of our audience may not had may not have a, a good uh entry point into this history and and so i think that we wanted to cover a couple of things and i think uh, laura executed that because you mentioned it you know we we wanted it to be something that will grab people grab people's attention um especially for two hours and take you through uh, this difficult history, but yet have a sort of a, a very positive and, uh, you know, a, a good uh, direction that we wanted to go in a good tone. And two hours can't justify the amount of people that have committed their lives to keeping the treaties valid and holding the United States or desiring the United States to be held accountable for its transgressions. And those people have come and went ever since the time that warfare dominated this area, which is in the state of South Dakota and, and the area uh, states uh, read the region around. So every single generation that has come since that time of warfare has always wanted to make sure that the United States did what it was going to say it was going to do. And it's just an incredible history. And some of those voices we may never know, you know, um, you know, how they kept carrying this mantle. If we could do just a little bit of uh, justice to any of that, that was our goal. So thank you so much, Laura Tomaselli and Jesse Shortbolt for joining us today. For a great history lesson, Lakota Nation versus United States screens Sunday, June 18th at 1 p.m. at Water's Edge Cinema. It's part of the Provincetown International Film Festival. Hello, 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 hello out there in Facebook land. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm very pleased to have my guest here with us today. I just saw her incredible film twice and I highly recommend it. I'm so thrilled to be speaking today with filmmaker Tunde Skovron. Her film, Who I Am Not, about our gender binary world, follows the lives of two South African intersex people 
about 150 million people worldwide are born with intersex traits and about that's about 2% of our population worldwide. Tunda's film will be screening at the Provincetown International Film Festival two times. So Thursday, June 15th at 10.30 a.m. and Saturday, June 17th at 10.30 a.m., both at Water's Edge Cinema 2. Welcome, Tunde. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for this wonderful opportunity. Thank you for, uh, so much for, for watching the film twice. <laughs> I uh, hope that the audiences will watch it twice too because they have this, this opportunity. And uh, yes, I am, uh, I am looking forward. Unfortunately, I won't be able to be at Pro Provincetown because uh, currently uh, I am in New Zealand at the South Pacific premiere of the film. Yesterday, we won an award in the best film in the category. And uh, today I'm flying to Sydney uh, because it's to the Australian premiere. So exciting times. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. And it's well-deserved and, it, and, and folks really should see this. So you were born in Romania. You have a BFA in drama, a background in theater. You've been in 30 plays. You also won two best actress awards yourself at international film festivals in New York City and Buffalo. As an actor and as a filmmaker, what inspired you to tell this story? As an actor, I was always attracted to to characters or stories that that push the boundaries uh, or um, are fall out of the norm because those are the, the the characters and those are the the stories that make the audience think. They they uh, make them uncomfortable and push them out of their comfort zone. Um, so, so obviously when I decided to direct, I, I wanted to, to touch a story or a theme that will push the audience out of the comfort zone and will make the audience think. So that's the reason I, I started with a very, very simple question. The, my question, my quest in the beginning was what makes a female a female? And I realized that the answer is not that very simple. So actually, the scientific definition of a female constantly changes. From the 1930s, for example, in elite sports, uh, uh, up until today, the definition of a female changed a lot of times. Uh, in the 1930s, someone who had a vagina was considered a female. Today, and uh, someone who has more than five nanomoles of testosterone is not considered uh, a female, cannot compete with other females in uh, certain um, uh, sports. So this excited me a lot. And I started, I started uh, following the story of an athlete who, who was banned uh, from competing in elite sports. And I ended up in South Africa. And that's how I met uh, the two characters of uh, who I am not. They are both South African. One of them is a beauty queen. And she found out that she has XY chromosomes when she was 21. So imagine that you are born and raised a girl, you socialize your entire life as a female, you have your boyfriend, you are about to get married, and all of a sudden, at a doctor's visit, you realize, hold on, but the blueprint of my body, my genetics is that of a male. What now? And then the other character, Dimakatsu Sibidi, um, 
they were born with ambiguous genitals. And back then, the medical uh, facility, I mean, in the, the doctors didn't know what to do. So they decided to operate, uh, to, to do a corrective uh, surgery. And um, they, they tried to normalize uh, Dimakatsu and make them a female. But then later on, they realized uh, Dimakatsu grew up and and uh, felt more of a male. Male, uh, they became male presenting, and now they have to live the life um, in this in this in this limbo. So pretty much um, this the dynamic of these two characters and the life of these two characters is is um, the textile of the film. And I hope that it will it will open many eyes. <laughs> I wanted to know in terms of, you know, your style as a filmmaker, tell the story with a lot of beautiful imagery. So can you talk about how you chose to convey it and also maybe what went on in the editing room? We were very present in their lives. The film was shot. We started the project in 2018 and it was a five year of uh, constant work. I, I introduced all kinds of elements, techniques that I learned from my acting, uh, during my acting career to teach them how to open up. I in, invited different therapists in our work process. I used uh, drama therapy, dream analysis uh, exercises, and the, the cinematic value of the film comes from, from these exercises. So many, many times we dramatized the dreams of uh, Sharon Rose as well. When you see this, uh, what, like there are a lot of um, underwater shots, those are, those are coming from, from the dream world. But, um, but every single element serves the, the purpose to elevate their, their vulnerability and, and make, them, make them available. For instance, there is a scene where they submerge in, in milk. So that was the result of an exercise when we tried to, to find out what is the, more, the most feminine uh, matter, of, of most feminine element possible. And then we came to the conclusion of milk and then we, we shot it. But of course, this is like, it's not always explained in the film. Where is it coming? Where the imagery is coming from? But they were part of our work. I really put a lot of emphasis on giving something to them as well, because I feel that is very selfish. Sometimes a filmmaker is exploiting or infiltrating in the life of, of an individual and to, to try to get the shot. I was working with them quite a lot in many layers, even though there was a pandemic in between uh, us and many thousands of kilometers. We, we continued our work uh, when we were not, not filming. We had Zoom sessions, Skype sessions. I... Every time we, we started the shooting day, we started with a warm-up um, where all the members of the crew had to be part of um, trust exercises. I felt that the, that the protagonists of the film have to trust us uh, more than themselves. because And if they, they are vulnerable in front of us, we have to be vulnerable. We have to show vulnerability as well. So... So every single member of the crew was really, really, really 
part of this whole process and um, we had to share the deepest secrets of our lives as well to them. They had to know about us as well, not just us getting something from them, you know? So it was, it was a long process, but um, it was worth every single minute. I, I'm just so thrilled <laughs> that this film, your film is playing. It's who I am not. It's Thursday, June 15th, again, 10.30, Saturday, June 17th, 10.30 at Water's Edge Cinema. Any final words on what you hope audiences can gain from this film? A lot of times I get that the beauty of the film is the fact that it's a universal story. Even though it's told with two characters who belong to the LGBTQI group, we managed to tell a universal story about humanity, about us. And this was this was actually the focus. Intersex is, is beyond East and West, is beyond Black or White, is beyond male or female. Intersex is about us. What connects us, male and female? This, this is actually a quote from Timakatsu, the, the protagonist of the film. And I think this is the best way to describe the film. We managed to to make a film about this very hard topic that carries a lot of humor. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcasts at WOMR.org. Also check out HealingWisdomRadioShow.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org. Theme music is provided by Mazen. You can find her website at mazenmusic.com. That's M A E S Y N 